Okay, we are rolling. New Kinetic Creators, Episode 2. I mentally did a uh, slate, just like... Yeah, there you go. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Kinetic Creators Podcast, a podcast for makers who are movers. It's a podcast where we break down and talk about interesting creative happenings, events, and news. I'm Robert. I'm Simon. Thanks for joining us today. We have a lot of things to talk about and break down for you, so let's get started. So, episode two. Episode two. We're, we're here. We're back. Thanks for having us. <laughs> um, yeah, so first topic. Something that I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. I don't even know how to just. You just kind of got to say it, you know. We have doggone Gundams in the real life world. <laughs> 60 feet tall, yeah. right? I think 18 meters, which is, yeah. for those of us who work on freedom units, is yeah. uh, 60 feet, 60 something feet, 54 feet, somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, and it moves and it works and they built it in Japan and, you know, because obviously, they would. obviously, um, and it literally like it like I saw this because you you put it in the thing and then I, I think I saw it on Reddit like a couple days later or something mm-hmm. like that and I was like we have the mechs from, from Pacific, Pacific Rim. Rim like that is real life it moves very slowly they're very slow moving mechs yeah. but you know somebody was like I'm just gonna throw money at this until it happens yeah and it's like I think they were throwing money at this for like four years now. Just wild, just looking at it. It's taking <laughs> it's taking a knee and like the imagination from an anime now in the real life world. Yes. Like, absolutely. Oh, I guess to explain for people who are like, what are these guys talking about? What a Gundam is. It's a giant robot that humans pilot. And so Japan's It's from an anime called Gun Gundam, right? Yeah. From, yeah, an anime from the same name. Um anime, Japanese animation. Um, a team of young heroes get inside giant robots. If you're familiar with Power Rangers, that kind of thing. You're speaking my language now with Power Rangers. And yeah, just saving the world with style and giant mecha punches. So does this mean that we're going to get like the um, the kaiju too? Well, I feel like 2020 was its own kaiju. And so it's <laughs> just really exciting to see uh, these apocalypse canceling robots um in the real world i feel a little bit safer and better about them this year (laughs) so if you haven't seen that you should go look at it because it's super cool japan is expecting a lot of us to see it there but like this whole cafe area to for people to um to go and watch it yeah go and watch it and they're they're expecting this to be pun intended a big deal oh man it has this like structure around it that makes it I mean it literally looks like Pacific Rim like Mm -hmm. you know if you saw the movie where you know the the mechs were like basically had these hangers that Mm -hmm. they they stood in they had like floors and levels to work on the mech and yeah it's got that and uh, it looks super dope and other news and other like I guess building fantasy news yeah Uh, so Hero Forge has a new website Simon you you found this so tell tell everybody what Hero Forge is and like why it's such a big deal and all that Hero Forge um, Hero Forge is a way to make custom figures figurines for tabletop role-playing games so Dungeons and Dungeons and Dragons um, Pathfinder the various Star Wars fantasy flight games the big draw to like these games has been able to you always you know create your own characters and create your own worlds and Hero Forge has been able to make these things act literally tangible um, by building a website where you can 
customize and build your own um, figures. Mm-hmm. I, I've spent an undisclosed amount of hours of my <laughs> life just tinkering and cut, creating um, characters and concepts that I won't use it for any game. <laughs> Number redacted. Uh, um, it, w- it started as a crown f- crowdfunded project uh, some years ago. I think and, in like, what, 2016, 2017, something like that? And pretty recently. Yeah. Um, but then last year they announced Hero Forge 2.0, now in color. Yeah, so I guess in the past you'd either paint it yourself or you'd hire a professional, but now Hero Forge has kind of stepped into that space by creating both the ability to 3D print colored options, or you can design uh, these color options and then have one of their... Um, designers? Or yeah, one of their designers mm-hmm. to do hand-painted... Um, figures of yourself it's really impressive how just how far they've come mm-hmm. you know because like so they started as a kickstarter right or yeah. something like that and then i think even i think i was reading about two years ago maybe last year they got a pretty decent amount of seed funding even mm-hmm. to like expand their operation uh, i think that's what i was reading and so like you know kind of bringing like custom minifigs to people through that 3d printing process you know coloring them i mean you can order them in bronze mm-hmm. looks like you know yeah. so you so it's not even just the fact that you like you can get these as like oh like they're color plastic like you might get you know in a box set of you know minifigures but like you can get them in bronze or you can download the file and print it yourself with whatever material you want i mm-hmm. guess you yeah. know um which is pretty dope but yeah i was i was just like playing with this this week because I'm, I'm like not like super into tabletop art RPGs, but I was looking at this and I was like, man, the options on this are, it seems like nearly infinite between just all of the various customizations. I mean, different head types, body types, poses, you know, the whole nine, basically. It felt like building like a character in like Sims or something. Yeah. You know what I mean, like you could spend hours and hours before you even like started playing the game, just customizing your character and what it was going to look like. And this felt like a very similar experience where it's it's a very much, it's a 3D experience in your browser that you can you know, you, you, you click something and it like shows up immediately. So from a technology perspective, even it's extremely impressive as a software platform, um, just looking at like how quickly it adapts and renders, you know, your selection, you know, zooming in, zooming out, getting some of the detail. And obviously they have like the 3d models for all these things and everything, but like just the, just the unlimited customization nearly on all these things is just pretty cool. Um, this character that I just, I'm just clicking around. This character I built looks like something from like, what's that space movie, Treasure Planet? Oh, yes. Underrated movie. But yeah, definitely see <laughs> this. It's like a she, she bear? Fox yeah. something or other. Yeah. And like, with the flamethrower. In a pirate costume or something. Dapper. Yeah. So, our next topic for today is a little bit not as whimsical. Um, but it's a really interesting idea here. And so this company came out and it's called Humane. The website is hu.ma.ne. And basically it is a tech startup that is rethinking mobile hardware and software. So if you're wondering what that means, it basically means that they're going to be building a new version of you know, your iPhone or your Android phone or whatever you have. There's not really any information about what exactly the form factor is going to be. We don't really know what the software is going to look like. We don't really know anything quite yet. We just have a lot of quotes from very notable people 
Um, most notable, perhaps among them, is Sam Altman, who started uh, the tech incubator Y Combinator, which launched Stripe and Dropbox and DoorDash and mm -hmm. big, big companies. So he obviously knows a lot. And then he's he's now the CEO of OpenAI, which is a really big AI company. Uh, they're doing a lot of really interesting things. And then also uh, Lockie Groom, who was uh, employee number 30 at Stripe. Um, so he is now moving into like, you know, venture capital investing and all that. Uh, so that's the two leaders of this and they're kind of the big names behind it. Uh, but yeah, like there's not a lot of information. They're just pitching this idea that we are, you know, we as people deserve technology that doesn't get in between us, doesn't mm -hmm. get in between our relationships. You know, we want technology that lets us focus on the world around us and each other. Um, so, so it's, it's, there's literally a quote from Sam Altman. So like, there's literally not much here yet. We don't really know exactly what mm -hmm. things are going to look like or what the, you know, form factor of the phone is going to be. They're hiring like crazy. Their job listing page has like 40 or 50 different, um, basically 40 to 50 different like camera and hardware mm -hmm. and uh, software engineering roles open. So one to keep your eye on if you're not already uh, looking at that. And that's definitely one to follow because they're going to be doing some interesting things, I think. When you share, put this in the sheet of topics to talk about, it was just really interesting, not necessarily what they were what they were making, but just like how they were so committed to letting, explaining why they mm -hmm. wanted to mm -hmm. do this. When it comes to like innovation in the Silicon Valley space, a lot of innovation is kind of, from what I see, is just, made from the perspective of like, you know, why not? Just kind of just pushing things into like right. real fast and break things. Break things. Yeah. There's obviously like a lot of success with that mindset, but um, I'm excited and also intrigued and slightly skeptical <laughs> of just like the idea of like technology being um, conformed like for the human and being human focused and make creating like a healthier relationship with technology on the website they have thesis video where they talk about um, just the amount of time we spend on staring at a screen mm -hmm. um, and like how many years of our life that is and how that's longer than you know our time to sleep how that's longer than we spend time eating and drinking also just like how lonely our generation is and how that can have detrimental effects moving forward if something doesn't change. If the people don't change, then maybe the technology can mm -hmm. change. And I think um, humane is something definitely to, like you said, keep an eye out for. Yeah, I think it's definitely it's necessary to have a healthy level of skepticism around something like this because obviously Silicon Valley is kind of famous for pitching things that don't come to pass mm -hmm. and or doing things that ultimately end up hurting so I definitely think that there's there's room for a healthy level of skepticism around this. But again, you know, I think the fact that, like you said, like someone is out here and they're looking at it and they're going, this can be different. Mm -hmm. And here's why we believe that. That is encouraging to me to yeah. see that, you know, because I think you're seeing, you know, back in kind of the 2010, 2015 era of kind of tech startups, you had a lot of people who basically were like, we just want to make something and there was good intention behind it. But right. ultimately we've now realized a lot of them had very you know, bad 
implementations to the point where they have ultimately sometimes detrimental to you know our society and our mental health, things like that. And now I think we're beginning to see kind of a new wave of tech startups that are like, no, 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 we're going to do things differently. Mm-hmm. You know, and the fact that they are getting this $30 million valuation, especially this year where there aren't very many companies that are getting that big of a number. In fact, those big numbers at Series A, that's not happening very much anymore. Like it used to be that you would see $50, $100 million at Series A, you know, five, six, ten five, six, seven years ago. And so now this $30 million at series A is a really, I think that's really interesting to see like, wow, obviously they're very, they're very confident that this is going to go well. Real quick, series A, who are they? So series A is, so like when you, when you start a company, you have a certain number of rounds basically, because you obviously don't have money and you need money to Mm -hmm. build things. Right. And so you will go through a certain number of rounds to uh, raise that money to accomplish a certain goal. So, you know, most, most companies will start at a seed round and mm. that will be, you know, I have an idea, I might have a prototype, I have some people who are interested in it and you might get a couple hundred thousand dollars from that. And basically you'd start at that round and then you're saying we're going to raise, you know, 500 grand at this round for uh, what in return your venture cat, what your investors are going to get in return at a five or 10 year period, ideally. And it can be really complicated depending on the terms of everything. It can be different. But so that seed round can be, you know, a couple hundred grand, could be a couple million, depends on what you're building. Mm. Series A is usually like, we have an idea, we have more concrete prototypes, we have more concrete um, kind of, you know, ideas, and we just basically need money to scale. Like mm-hmm. we just need all this money to get the get it out the door so people can actually start using it. It's yeah. usually like like I said, like I mean they're hiring like I think there's probably thirty or forty different job listings. So like it's obviously used for scaling your team. It's used for for them. It's going to be used for definitely production and like shipping and like mm-hmm. all these things. So the Series A funding round is led by a certain investment team to basically build bring on a certain amount of money. So the fact that they have Sam Altman who started Y Combinator and he is like basically one of the big big wigs mm-hmm. in investing they were basically able to raise this $30 million from him and other people. They, they probably had maybe 10, 15, maybe not that many, maybe five or six, um, anywhere in there of you know, different venture capital firms basically giving money to them to, to do it. So when you're a series A company, you have a certain, basically a certain timeline that you're working on, gotcha. um, that you're, that you're beginning to say, we're, you know, we might go to a series B, which would be a scale even more, might even be to bring on more people. And usually by the time you get to a series C or series D, you're beginning to look at like an exit, like who are we going to sell to? Are we going to list on, you know, the New York stock exchange? Like, and then everybody's basically get their money back and get a return on that investment. Gotcha. Cool, so cool. series A is very early, but they do obviously have something that has convinced these investors that mm-hmm. what they're doing is worth giving $30 million to. Now with that in mind, it is, this does make Humane that much more interesting because of how solid their philosophy is moving forward and mm-hmm. um, how you are saying earlier, just like we've seen a lot of mistakes um, made from like good intentions and to see not only we have like like that history to pull from, but like these are, these aren't like people fresh out of like college trying to build the next big thing, but these are experts with years of experience on creating yes. 
creating and developing at a high level. Yes, I would. Ex- I would expect their executive team to be on their yeah. third or fourth company at this point for mm-hmm. sure. And that's kind of even that, that does bring up a good point too. Is like you know this is almost like iPhone version two. Mm-hmm. You know we kind of you know we're at obviously like the iPhone whatever 10, 12, 15, whatever whatever number we're at. But this is like kind of thinking about like the form factor or the philosophy of smartphone version two mm-hmm. and what is that going to be what is that going to look like and how are we going to get there so the um, evolution and growth of something established and kind of like pivoting and adapting to be enjoyed be utilized in a healthier way and i think that just reminds you of the next thing you put on this list um casey nice casey <laughs> casey nice that's um, new vlog basically casey nice 2.0 um, yeah, I mean, I've been a big fan of Casey for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I started watching him in like 2015, 2016 when he started his daily vlog and he kind of really took the daily vlog and I mean, he blew it up. I mean, people were copying him. People were, I mean, you know, we have arguably we have the vlogs on YouTube that we have now because of Casey. Oh, Everything from the technology he used to the format he used to the music he used to his the way he formed his shots, the way he did his storytelling. I mean, every every single piece of it. Um, And in 2018, 2018, 2019, something like that, he quit. He basically stopped doing the daily vlogs for various reasons. Uh, I think one of them was that his wife threatened to leave him if he didn't stop because it was basically consuming every single day of his life. There is no day off from a daily vlog because I think he did it for three or four years. So it was well over six or seven hundred episodes. Anyway, regardless of how many he made, you know, he basically took a break. He took time off. Um, He and his family moved to California from New York City. And uh, just in the last, I guess, two weeks, three weeks now, he started uploading a new daily vlog. And these are much shorter than they used to be. Most of his earlier vlogs were somewhere in about 10, 12, 15 minute range. And now he's kind of looking at the five to six minute range. But he's kind of got this very similar Casey vibe, but definitely like kind of a new look instead of like his whole day. It's more of like, cause frequently his earlier vlogs would start, you know, with sunrise and they would end after nightfall for him, mm. you know? And so now it's more like these little snippets throughout his day. And usually it's, you know, you could tell it's a couple hours, but you know, and he's kind of taking this new approach with it. And, um, I like it. I think, you know, now we're going to see that daily vlog style probably come back a little bit more. I think like, you know, because we've YouTube has definitely gotten kind of from the kind of overproduced look of mm-hmm. content creators now. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the a lot of these different styles of or even like the Mr. Beast style of video. And now Casey's kind of coming back and saying, like, I'm going to do this new daily vlog style. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if we're going to start seeing kind of resurgence of that. Yeah, it's just very interesting to see like how the head or the pioneer or the the goat. Yeah, the goat of daily vlogging and just that subgenre on on YouTube, or not much bigger than the subgenre on YouTube. Making YouTube what it was basically. Mm-hmm. I just think it's very interesting like how Casey, the goat, the forerunner of the daily vlog, how he took a break and kind of just relaunched himself to be like a healthier mm-hmm. version of himself yes. and what he's doing because you're talking about like yes, um, starting at sunrise and ending at dusk and like if you're making a content every day about your entire day that's just a lot of time not only just like filming but then you have to like turn around and digest that and edit it yeah as like a husband and as a dad like there's no room for 
anything else at that point. That can strain the individual and then the individual surrounding that person. But also, you know, creates a lot of pressure for people who want to like tap into like vlogging and creates these, you know, unrealistic expectations. Like mm-hmm. every day needs to be epic because mm-hmm. Casey's doing it and he's mm-hmm. like He's killing it. He's crushing it. Yeah. Gotta move to a big I gotta city. Do it too. I yeah. gotta um have this many cameras or... Gotta get a booster board. Well, everyone needs a booster board, but for different reasons. Just in peace. But yeah, just like creating those unrealistic expectations of trying to be impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost it's kind of interesting because we're talking about humane, like taking another stab at making, you know, our smartphones healthier. And now Casey's kind of taking a stab at like, how do I make content creation healthier for me? I mean, he even has a video in there called The Truth Why I Quit. Yeah. And um, that was two weeks ago. And he basically talks about how like, you know, he worked and worked and worked and worked and worked himself nearly to death. Mm-hmm. You know, he was like, you know, I've got to enjoy this. Mm-hmm. I've got to take what I've put so much into and spend some time and just reap the success basically of what he did and what he created over the last year and a half or so he's he uploaded maybe teen videos maybe 20 yeah and again if you're coming from like every day that yeah. is a significant change of pace absolutely i mean and he made a whole five minute video about uh fixing his shower soap dish <laughs> and casey neistat is probably the only person in the world who can make that interesting and entertaining to watch him try to fix his shower <laughs> fix this problem with the soap dish in the shower. But I think that's that's also just really cool. Like instead of trying to like capture the whole every day, I'm really about slowing down and just focusing on the moments that happen every day that um, we can yeah, just not appreciate or take for granted. Yeah, or mm-hmm. just take can. for granted. Yeah, for sure. One of the things that I thought was interesting in that video specifically was how he compared um, where he was at to um, father-in-law. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, yep. that's and, right. And how um, he's sick. He's in his 60s and is finally able to enjoy the fruits of his labor as a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Casey kind of broke down the retirement philosophy like that is like the classical understanding of retirement and rest that, mm-hmm. we, that we're used to having. And mm-hmm. then or the option of just taking years off in the middle of while we're working. I think he's trying to do a third thing, which is basically have a healthier pace overall. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even now, like even tech companies are now starting to offer that where (laughs) you you spend a certain amount of time at a company and you get like a three to six month sabbatical and is basically literally just paid time to rest and reap what you have sown essentially with your hard work and with, you know, all that kind of thing. And I, I definitely think that's a really good approach to take in terms of like, you know, taking that time, even if it's just every couple of years to say like, I'm going to take some time, just like extended time to rest yeah. and to figure out what's next. What do I, what am I going to do here? You know, after this, you know, what am I going to put my energy towards? What do I want to be doing next? Speaking so, of what's next and up and coming, there you go. Up and coming composer. Yes. Ludwig, Lud, Ludwig, Ludwig, Ludwig sounds proper. Ludwig, uh, Gorenson or Gorenson. I don't know. The, the O has the two little dots over it, so I'm not entirely sure. Anytime somebody rolls their R's, I automatically assume they're correct because <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> so, sorry if we pronounced that wrong. He's So, he's like an up-and-coming composer. He's, so, he scored The Mandalorian. He scored Black Panther. He did uh, Creed. Yeah, all of Ryan Coogler's projects. All of Ryan Coogler's projects. Um, Tenet. Tenet, that's right, Tenet. So, this is cool. In keeping with the kind of the version 2.0 as we're going through, and not that, you know, he is exactly this but you know we've kind of had the john williams and the hans zimmers of the composing world for a long time and obviously hans zimmer is a genius and so is john williams you know 
Jurassic Park, Indiana Jones, Star Wars, Interstellar, uh, Inception. You know, I mean, obviously, like the musical genius behind these guys is incredible. But Ludwig Gordon, who's actually Hans Zimmer's protege, protege essentially, um, is now kind of this up and coming composer. He's from Sweden. Sweden. Yes. Okay, I was going to guess Sweden, so I'm, I'm glad I was going to guess right. So there's this video on YouTube of about him kind of composing the score of The Mandalorian. And I gotta say, like, for someone to take on the mantle of Star Wars, probably one of the most iconic scores in history, to take that on and to say, I'm going to make something new, fresh, is like amazing to me. And he did, he just crushed it. the video about how he uh, made the, the the composition for Black Panther and very similar vibe, you know, where he obviously does his research in terms of cultural significance, but also looking at saying, how do I make this unique and how do I make this something that is new and fresh that tells the story? Because really, I mean, these visual stories that we have in movies and TV shows would be nothing without the music. Oh, yeah, it'd be so awkward. So empty. Yeah, it would just not exist. And, you know, the way that he has crafted specifically the Mandalorian theme with such a distinctly kind of Western vibe, but also distinctly Star Wars space uh -huh. kind of far, far away, different universe, different type of music, but somehow familiar. An interesting tidbit from the Mandalorian, the Mandalorian theme song and the Killmonger or Killmonger specific theme song, they mesh together really well, which mm. I think is um, a cool little um, Easter egg nugget for um, people who are like, interested in, like, I, guess, um, I guess, tendencies or just artisanal flex or flares. But yeah, he's somebody to, I would say, I was about to say keep an eye out for, but like keep an ear out for. One of the cool things is that I find his main instrument choice to be mm -hmm. very interesting. Yeah. So like in The Mandalorian, the main instrument that you hear is a recorder. It's a yeah. bass recorder. Not I my mean, first choice. Obviously, like, you know, for most of us, the, our exposure to the recorder is fourth grade music <laughs> class. And, Hot it's, crust buttons. and it's like one of the worst things that's ever been enforced upon the human experience. But he has turned that into something that is amazing and truly masterful honestly like i mean and so we'll have a link to this video but like you know he's basically the scoring the mandalorian he plays the mandalorian theme song in like the, the mandalorian sets um which are a whole nother topic that we could talk about and maybe we will but this dude probably plays like 40 different instruments <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> like like piano guitar you know he plays several different synthesizers recorder Seems like he plays drums, he plays different, I'm sure he plays multiple different stringed instruments. Yeah. Um, and I believe Black Panther used a, what was it, a, a calling drum? Yeah. If I remember as talking drum, talking drum. That's yes. right. Yes. As the main uh, instrument in its soundtrack uh -huh. as a drum. And then he un overlaid that or underlaid it, I guess, with an 808 to match the beat, Yeah, um, which gave it kind of more modern kind of vibe to it. But I don't know, like he, the way he kind of thinks about instruments is just in especially in the scores is something that I would never really consider. 
you know, as someone who's, who's been a musician, I just wouldn't even think about like a recorder being the, mm-hmm. the base for a, an iconic theme song. It makes a lot of sense considering his background as mm-hmm. like a hip hop producer. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And you're talking about how he built the Black Panther soundtrack off with the talking drums, which is an instrument that he had to learn about and yep. was new to him. But he also then brought in something that he was familiar with as a producer for Travis Gambino, a long t- a long time collaborator of his, to create something new. And it, I guess yeah, going back to the idea of um, his how his hip-hop producer background kind of maybe inspires this playfulness is just that one thing that, that i just really love about the genre of music and the art of sampling um oh for sure um it's just yeah just um opens the doors for so many possibilities i think um that's just it's really exciting to see that kind of influence being brought into just now oscar winning grammy winner um, young, exciting artist. For sure. With that, should we talk about Mandalorian season two? So they dropped that again about two weeks ago. Yes, I don't know. It's October now, so that was middle of September. So is that two weeks ago? Feels right. Close enough. But what is time in twenty twenty? Yeah, for real. Yeah. Full full disclosure on my part, I haven't actually finished watching season one yet. I've only watched episode four, so. Okay. Sorry, all Star Wars lovers, you can crucify me if you want, but yeah, Mandalorian season two is back with Baby Yoda and Baby Yoda's back, and so a lot of things that I'm excited about aren't necessarily the narrative itself of the Mandalorian, which is, you know, no spoilers, but very exciting and very it was just an enjoyable ride from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Star Wars has changed a lot, and it's going to be very interesting to see how they continue to uh, move forward. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, here. And of course, Baby Yoda is back. Oh, uh, yeah. Are they filming uh, Mandalorian at Pinewood Studios? I believe so. Mm-hmm. It's in Atlanta, for those who aren't familiar. It's coming out October 30th for everybody who, who doesn't know yet. It's on, on Disney+. Plus. So get that login from your friend. Hi, Mom. I'm probably sending you a text in a little bit. <laughs> Unrelated. One of the coolest things, so like mm-hmm. on the topic of Mandalorian in general, is how they're shooting this so obviously the story is amazing and to me it is probably the best star wars story i've seen i personally like it in pretty much all the movies yeah same even though i have not watched all of it what i have seen i like better so obviously the storytelling is amazing the music is amazing but the way that like the technology behind what they're doing is pretty incredible and probably the most cutting edge right now at least in terms of at a minimum in tv if not all in film as well um basically the what they're doing or what they use is they have these gigantic led screens um and it is in pinewood in atlanta okay in pinewood so they have these giant led screens instead of using a green screen stage and uh, basically, all of the environments, all of the uh, all of the the yeah environments, settings, sets are built in Unreal Engine, and it is linked in with the cameras. Mm-hmm. And so the sets that you see, the backgrounds, environments are real time rendered on LED screens, and they are literally lighting the subjects in the environment that they do build. Uh, so it's basically like three sixty degree 
you know, or as much of that, I guess, mm -hmm. d degree of these screens with screens on top. So, um, and basically the way it works is essentially motion tracking with the camera so that wherever the camera is, uh, the background is shifting, uh, you mm -hmm. know, proper parallax effects that you yeah. would get based on distance, uh, you know, based on lighting, atmospheric ex effects. And so it kind of real time renders with the camera, yeah, which is absolutely mind boggling from a technology perspective. And, um, from what I've read and what I've, what I've seen about it is that it is obviously cheaper to do because you're building an unreal engine, which mm -hmm. is an open source platform. Um, open source, I think it's open source or it's free at least. Oh, sweet. It, it, whatever, you know, so unreal engine, incredibly popular video game platform. Most all video games, a lot of video games are built in Unreal now. Oh, so and not only is it like easy to build, but it also lights the set. Yeah. So they don't have to have extra lighting. They don't have to have and all of the technical aspects that go with that with, you know, key grips, you know, and all the the, the extra stuff that comes with lighting. But like it, it's literally matched perfect lighting with the set. Um, and it's, it's especially valuable too, because the Mandalorian's helmet is so shiny Bruh. and it's almost perfectly like mirrored metal. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, if you're going to have a green screen effect, getting keying the green out of that metal, out of that shiny metal, Simon's shaking his head vigorously. <laughs> no, because no one wants to do that. And it would just be super time intensive, super crazy hard. And honestly, the effect may not even be that great based on the budget they have for a TV yeah, show. Budget and timing and... You know, with the green screen, there is a lot of time um, and development on building these worlds and these environments or creating these effects in post. Mm -hmm. But you're then limited for time. And that time crunch does it will it'll be a factor either way. Right. Because um, you have to now you have to, you know, build these environments ahead of time. Mm -hmm. But I think the the payoff um, so far between Mandalorian and... Uh, any other TV yeah, show it was like any that has visual effects in it. It's night and day. Um, Absolutely. Well, I mean, yeah. even just from a... Just like using technology appropriately, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. using technology that we have, like Unreal Engine, what was it, 5, whatever came out in July. And I mean, just the, the rendering capabilities of Unreal Engine is just absolutely mind-blowing like it looks real it looks like photorealistic and you can't tell the difference for the most part and you're saving so much time you don't have to do compositing you don't have to do lighting you don't have to do motion i'm sure there is still some of that stuff in terms of you know other complex visual effects from the ships and you know weapons and things like that but when it comes to the environments and things, all that stuff is already built and it's already there. So it's much easier to then add those things in and post and they can spend more of this time on the details. They can spend more time on those things, which often get left out, even in big budget movies, they get that stuff gets dropped all the time. And it's just, a, it's just a factor of time, time and budget. And that's just what it comes down to. Fun fact. If you want to see a very great, um, visual effects bug in a recent wonderful movie called Avengers Endgame. Have you heard about this? No. Do you know? So there's a scene where Thanos has the glove on his hand mm -hmm. and he's about to snap. And the the glove clips Ooh. like the where the fingers align. So like where you're where the base of your finger, that knuckle and where the palm align, it clips through, made it into the final cut. So even spoilers in, for anyone who hasn't seen. Sorry, it. everybody. But no, like, but if like, you haven't, but even like in a movie as big as that with a gigantic budget, stuff still gets cut, dropped. And so technology advancements like this, mm 
make a big difference. And that's just like that's the shot before probably the most important shot in like the whole in the, MCU. And yeah, so absolutely. That's crazy. Um, one of the benefits of like working on these sets with these screen, it gives it creates stronger performances and strong more clear direction mm-hmm. for the directors Absolutely. because they um, you can literally see it. Yeah, you're not you know just um, imagining. Yeah, <laughs> that was like one of the um, critiques for the prequels. It's like the the invite the um, actors were just. And in front of these green screens, interacting with these tennis balls, trying to imagine something that does not exist in the real world. Your um, sometimes concept art and character designs change, so eye lines don't match or all these other factors. So it it helps um, ground the actors, directors, um, while, you know, you're in a galaxy far, far away. Absolutely. Yeah. The stronger performances and all that. Speaking of strong performances, Ooh. Lion King 2. The Lion King live action 2, mm-hmm. which will be different than the Lion King animated 2. Ooh, interesting. I was just reading that. It's not supposed to, I don't think it's supposed to be the same story. I think it's supposed to chronicle Mufasa. Really? Uh, so they announced a, so I haven't seen the live action remake. I saw the original. I haven't seen the live action remake. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I really care about that so much, but they're making a new one and they actually announced a new director, same director who d- directed Moonlight mm-hmm. and uh, If Beale Street Could Talk, um, Barry Jenkins. Uh, Simon, you were in- interested in that. Yeah, I thought um, pivoting or this just continuing the conversation from the Mandalorian and how one of the things that was very interesting about season one um, was just like how they brought in all of these quote unquote serious artsy directors like a Taika Waititi, um, Bryce Dallas Howard, um, Dave Dave Filoni, obviously a big name for anyone interested in not only Star Wars but Avatar The Last Bender those fans fans should be familiar with that name and Rick uh, Rick Moranis uh, if, if only um, Rick <laughs> Rick um, Rick Familia oh I'm sorry in advance Rick Familia <laughs> um, very um, celebrated um, director out of Nigeria um and so yeah, being able to bring in these different perspectives to create this this cohesive narrative um, from like actors with different backgrounds and um, narrative bends, mm-hmm. um, and so again, which is already a Disney Plus um, a Disney Plus uh, project, and so now moving forward to Lion King live action, not live action, live action the sequel. It's um, really cool to see um, Barry Jenkins, um, famous for, um, like you were saying earlier, Moonlight. Mm. Um, the Oscar... Oh, I forgot. Did he, did he win that? I should know this. He won an Oscar. Moonlight won Best Picture. It looks like it won a lot of stuff. <laughs> it, yeah. <laughs> One of the more celebrated films of the decade, um, which is ironic um, because the, the new Lion King was called a lot of things, but... It wasn't celebrated for its artistic value, right. um, as opposed to what this director is known for. Very thoughtful, very um, serious narratives. Well, it's just, uh, to me, it's interesting, too, because <laughs> they're bringing in much more, you know, you could say critically acclaimed mm-hmm. director for a, what is, in essence, a children's story. Yes. But a children's story that they are departing from kind of the original plot or the original script. 
And to me, that makes Lion King 2 now much more interesting to go see. Mm -hmm. Much more likely for me to go see it or watch it wherever it is. Because it's not supposed to be about the original. It's Mm -hmm. going to be a totally new story. Well, you know, obviously a new retelling of a different part of the story, I guess you might say. To me, that's really potentially very interesting and much more uh, attractive even though the first Lion King live action made $1.5 billion. Yeah, one of the biggest... One of the biggest releases, right? Oh, yeah. Ever? Yeah, ever, yeah. And it's just that big release um, kind of creates like a, a really cool symbiotic relationship between like the big blockbusters, the big um, big tentpole films or big tentpole streaming um, projects, how those still create opportunities for these um, smaller or smaller mid-sized um, um, direct projects and stories mm-hmm. to be told. So like the funding and the, the success and the funding from Lion King kind of put, um, paves the way, um, one, for a technology standpoint, um, gener- um, advancing with um, how they were able to do their CGI animals mm-hmm. and um, how mm-hmm. that will... Like just like the possibility, the implications uh, for projects moving forward. Right. Um, and then the idea that the smaller stories um, are going to be able to be told because of the financial success of like these bigger stories that are, you know, a lot more commercial and obviously audience accessible. Yeah, for sure. And um, so speaking of directors, Robert, you shared you shared a short film uh, with me earlier. Yeah, it's called C U S C A U. So it's literally about the C. I found this. Uh, so it actually released like I guess back in April or May. Mm-hmm. Let's see, what month is it? October. Yeah. So I guess it was like May, April or May, somewhere in there. And uh, it was by this guy named Ben Brand. And it's essentially a story of I guess recycling, if mm-hmm. you want to say. And it came from this story of from the director's girlfriend. Um, and how they spread her deceased grandmother's ashes over the sea. And that's something that's very popular. A lot of people Mm -hmm. do that. And then just kind of wondering what happens to that ash. Mm -hmm. You know, where does it go? And so he, so this is a beautiful little film. Uh, It's only about two minutes, two and a half minutes long. It's an animation. And the the story talks about how this woman basically um, spreads her deceased I guess, husband's ashes over the sea. Mm-hmm. And then it shows these fishes. Sorry, everybody. Spoiler alerts. <laughs> I'm going to do an awful job of explaining it. So just go watch it and you'll, no. you'll get a better grasp of it. But basically it, it tells the story of how these fish come and eat those ashes. The fish get processed. And she mm-hmm. ends up eating the fish for dinner. A little weird when you think about it like that. But the interesting thing about the story is that he the video plays in reverse. So like every action, mm-hmm. all of the animation is reversed. So it's, you know, she's like, you, you watch her kind of, you know, riding her bike backwards as if she's going, you know, to the com- market. coming from the market, yeah. you know, it's going backwards, kind of reversing in time. Uh, you're seeing kind of like the process of the fish kind of being taken out of the, you know, little packages and being put back on the boat and all this kind of thing. And what really struck me about this is is the 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 video itself, the the animation quality is beautiful. It, it has mm. this kind of three D look, but it has a very painterly look, almost like it was three D models that were overpainted with like watercolors or mm. like an oil or uh, something along those lines. The the backgrounds remind me of a lot of like a, a of like a Rembrandt, um, mm. and. 
it's just a beautiful looking uh, video and like the sound design is really great. Well, so I was reading about this um, video and he's won many different awards. I think he's probably won half a dozen awards for this film. And what he talks about in one of these uh, articles is that he actually, the original film was regular, mm-hmm. like, like forward motion. So it starts mm-hmm. with the fish in the sea eating these ashes. And then you, the final scene is this woman taking a bite of this fish, mm. even though in the version that he released, the first scene is the woman taking the bite of fish out of her mouth yeah. in reverse. And he said that, you know, they got the full edit done. They had like done it all. It was ready to go. And one day he was thinking about it. What if it was in reverse? And so literally on his laptop, like, I mean, he had a team of, I don't know, probably 12 people, 15 people here, um, working on it and him by himself on his laptop, he edited it to be in reverse. And he was like, the story was so much more powerful. And oh, I yeah, agree. Sure. I 100% agree. Like if I was looking at this in normal, like normal, regular, normal, you know, forward motion, however you're going to describe that, I would look at it and say, it's a beautiful video, mm-hmm. but I would not necessarily be like amazed by the story. But in this way, you're building the suspense and understanding of connection between the two moments mm-hmm. of the ending, which is the woman casting these ashes into the breeze on this yeah. seacoast that looks like, you know, Denmark or, you know, Great Britain or whatever. And even just like the way she traces like this little heart on the top of the uh, on the top of the, the boss um, yeah. or the urn or whatever it is. So it's just like this beautiful retelling. And it was n- him by himself, he re-edited it to be backwards on his laptop. And I was just like, that is so interesting because so oftentimes we like, we get something finalized, we get it finished, we get it the way Mm -hmm. we want it, but we never really take a think. We never really take a think. We never really think about (laughs) like, what if we like just flipped it on its head? Yeah. You know, like what if we just like reversed it? What if we inverted it? What if we did something like that? And um, I just think it's a really beautiful story. Obviously, the beautiful story, but I think it's also a really interesting kind of creative lesson for us in terms of not necessarily looking at it as it should be, but thinking about what if it was different? Well, what if what? How could this be different than what I think it needs to be right now? Yeah, I think um, yeah, just following the progr- the way the story was originally told to be built, the most powerful moment would have been at the beginning. But here, mm-hmm. um, the final edit that, we, that we're watching, um, the releasing of the ashes, which is like the most powerful emotional moment, but also the more, one of the more visually um, beautiful moments in the video as well. Kind of building up to the mm-hmm. whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, that moment was probably what inspired this original story. Mm-hmm. And that's, so naturally, that's probably where he would have started. Like yep. the way, even while you were um, describing his thought process, like I wonder what happens to these ashes, and then the story kind of builds from there. Yep. And so the way it was quote unquote supposed to be told, follow you know follows the journey of those ashes. But uh, oh, now even just looking at the replay, like that one fish is a more vibrant than the other one, so you can still follow it. Mm-hmm. Just pretty neat. Absolutely. But yeah, just following that journey um, in reverse, it kind of yeah starts with dark, sad, and lonely with the lady crying, eating alone. But here um, in this edit, um, it's just a lot more open and um, still has that somber feeling of you know the loss of a loved one. It's almost like a, a it's like a bittersweet almost bittersweet. Yeah, like somber, mm-hmm. but like almost weirdly hopeful. Mm-hmm. 
like the colors are just very warm. It's mm -hmm. a very like like I said, like it's a very painterly style. Um, but the final, but the final scenes, which would have been the first scenes, are very warm. Mm -hmm. They're very, they're not cold. They're not dark. They feel like almost like this moment of closure is happening. Yeah. Bittersweet closure. Um, but because it's at the end, you have kind of given this, you've got this emotional payoff at the end after seeing like all the scenes of, you know, fish being processed mm -hmm. and her taking the fish out of the market and all this kind of thing. You also just don't see films. I don't think played like this very frequently. No, yeah. Not all the way through for sure. You know, and I don't, I think like, you know, if, if I had been thinking about this or, you know, even if he had been thinking about like, what if I told the story in reverse, I don't think it would have come out like this, mm -hmm. you know, because literally it's, it's just a reversed video, you know, instead of saying, well, what if we tell the story in reverse? And I think that's a really interesting idea as well. Yeah, the, just the simplicity is so powerful about this. Yeah. So that's, that's your creative lesson for this week. How can you think about something differently? Mm -hmm. How can you look at reversing or inverting or doing it differently than you had initially thought? Yeah. Not being afraid to do that too. Mm -hmm. I think because, you know, we can, it's, it's almost like a sunk cost fallacy kind of thing where, oh, I spent all this time. We did it exactly this way. I mean, he could, he would have been exactly right. And we would have all been like, you did the right thing by not doing that and wasting all those people's time. Yeah. You know, but because he did, because he took this kind of creative leap, if you will, I think it's got a much bigger payoff. Than not being